Welcome back to State Local Government. This is Mark Johnson from M State Moorhead. In this unit, we're talking about local government. The first thing we need to talk about is what's the difference between a county, a city, and a special district. So let's take these one at a time. Um, counties, counties originally started as subunits of state government. Basically, counties exist. They were created by the state to provide things like law enforcement, like the sheriff's office, uh, tax assessment and tax collection, uh, social services, um, back in the 19th century, things like land claims. And that was all done basically so you could do this without having to travel all the way to St. Paul, Pierre, or Bismarck to, to do one of those things. You know, think about what life would be like, especially in the rural areas, um, for your ancestors. Imagine having to travel all the way to the state capital to do something like file a land claim or to bring a lawsuit against your neighbor over a property line dispute. In order to make it easier to access those types of things, the state government created these subdivisions called counties. So even today, if you buy a piece of property, where do you go to file the deed? You go to the county courthouse, right, which has something called the Register of Deeds Office. It might go by different names in different states, but it's going to be something like that. Uh, if you want to protest the valuation of your property tax, you also go to the county courthouse, the tax assessor's office. And again, some states might use different variations on the name, but there's some office in your county courthouse or office complex that handles stuff like this. So on the other hand, there are some things the state cannot do or they will not do. Um, in the 18th and 19th centuries, cities formed because as people started concentrating their homes and businesses in certain areas, they realized, hey, we need more fire and police protection that the local county can offer. Um, so groups of citizens in those concentrated areas would get together and apply to the state for a charter, which is basically nothing more than a document giving someone or some group the right to do something, form a business, trade in a certain industry, or in this case, form a city government. In the 20th and 21st centuries, city powers expanded to include other functions, parks, streets, garbage, sewer, water, libraries, etc., etc. Cities are generally limited by something called the Dillon Rule, named after the Iowa Supreme Court Justice uh, and Federal Appeals Judge who authored this concept. This is a judicial principle that says cities can only perform those functions that are specifically given to them by the state government. Uh, later on in this lecture, we'll talk more about cities and the types of charters that cities can get. This is important under the Dillon rule. The charter can either give the city government a lot of power authority or it can really limit that power and authority. The third major, major type of local government are special districts. These are independent boards or, or districts or commissions. Usually they have some sort of governing body that's separately elected by the voters. In a, in a few cases, they might be appointed by somebody else, other city or county, city, county, or state officials. Oftentimes, they have taxing authority, meaning they can assess property taxes or fees on their own without getting permission from the city, county, or state. In most cases, they have one purpose. School boards are only in the business of education, for example. Park boards are only in the business of building and maintaining parks and recreation. Uh, in some states, there are special, special districts which do all sorts of things. Some eastern seaboard states and rural western states have water boards, although for different reasons. And in some suburban areas, rather than having each small city run a fire department, there might be a fire district board, which is formed to provide that one service to the entire area. Uh, pretty much all of us live in at least one special district, because we all have a local K-12 school system that serves our area. Um, 
one of the outside reading notes that in some urban, urban areas, the schools are under the authority of a local official, such as the mayor. But those exceptions are pretty few and far between. Um, those of you in North Dakota might, depending on where you live, have a local park board. That's a special district created by the state with authority to tax its residents for the purposes of running park and recreation. Now, if you live in Minnesota or in some of the smaller North Dakota towns, you don't have those. Instead, the local parks are probably run by the city government. As I said earlier, states can limit the powers of city government under this thing called the Dillon Rule. And the way they do that is through the charter. Again, the, the type of charter that a city uh, has indicates what types of functions the city will be allowed to perform. Uh, just to remind you that the charter is that document, is, again, issued by the state government, that authorized that group of people to form a city government in that particular place. Uh, if you walked into your local city hall, uh, the original charter of the city, the original copy of the city charter, which is probably from 100 years ago or more, it's probably hanging on the wall. It's probably in the lobby outside the mayor's office or maybe in the city council chamber room where they hold council meetings. Um, the most commonly found type in the United States, especially in smaller towns, is something called general law. And they sometimes call this statutory cities or statutory municipalities, um, whatever they call it. The law will lay out a system of classes, usually based on population. So I'm just giving you some hypothetical theoretical examples here. Um, for example, let's say a state's law say uh, all cities with population under a thousand are class one cities. And class one cities can provide basic police, fire, and can own city parks up to a certain number of acres. And then once your population gets to 1,001, and as long as it's under 2,500, that's a class two city. Class two cities can do those same three things, plus add a municipal court and contract ambulance services. And again, these are just hypothetical theoretical examples. In the real world, they're a lot more detailed. There's a lot more powers given. Um, but the point should be obvious. City functions are based strictly on population. A couple of states use land taxable land value but again, because taxable land value fluctuates so much from one year to another, that's kind of hard to nail down. Most states use census population. Um, there are a few states, North Dakota is one of them, where there's one charter form for all cities, regardless of size or valuation, and all cities have the same powers as long as they can afford it. Um, that's, again, that's pretty rare. The nice thing about general law system, especially this classification system, is that as populations change, or as technology or needs change, the state doesn't have to constantly re reissue 100 charters or 500 charters. All they have to do, they change one law and say, okay, uh, we're going to add this new power to all class two cities. And then it applies to all cities under that classification. The second type is the home rule city. So, what a home rule city uh, has, what they have this unique, they have the right to amend and actually write their own charter and determine their own powers as long as the city, as long as the citizens of that city agree to that. Uh, so, for example, May 2005, uh, folks who live in Fargo, we voted on an amendment to our city charter, which would have extended the Fargo Dome sales tax for several more years to fund a new downtown arena. By the way, that failed. Um, the state of North Dakota doesn't usually allow cities to run sports arenas. But the cities that have home rule charters, like Fargo and Grand Forks, can take on those kinds of functions if they and their citizens choose to do so. So, as I said, the amendment failed, but the decision to not fund that function was strictly that of the citizens of Fargo, not anybody else's. 
2018, Fargo, Fargo citizens voted for an amendment to their charter to adopt a very unique form of election called approval voting. Um, North Dakota law lays out some options for how city council members and mayors are elected, but because Fargo is home rule, they could use options that weren't on the state's list. The third type is something called special legislation. Um, these are found in many parts of the country, um, although they somewhat, they're somewhat only apply to certain particular situations. They tend to be most limiting and most commonly found in the South, especially Alabama. Historically, you used to see them in Georgia as well. Um, under special legislation, or what are sometimes called local law provisions, a city has to get specific approval from the legislature before they can do something. A uh, good example of this is bonding, borrowing money in Alabama. The 1905 Constitution, which is the one they still operate under down there, has a $50,000 limit on the amount of money that a city can borrow. Now, in 1905, $50,000 was a huge amount of money. But today, you probably know this, at least if you've ever tried to you're in the construction business or if you've just ever, you know, priced this out, um, 50000 bucks would barely buy you a large garage. You can't do much for $50,000 these days, at least in terms of large expenses, you know, in terms of what you get. Um, if an Alabama city wanted to, say, borrow money uh, to build an extension to the fire station that was going to cost more than 50000 bucks, they would have to wait for permission from the Alabama legislature to actually borrow that money. Uh, these types of provisions have tended to really limit what cities can do. Uh, a little bit closer to home, this goes back a few years now, uh, there was this big debate over the Twins and Viking stadiums. And there was the, the state legislature, you might remember, had a role in all that. Hennepin and Noka counties were asking for specific permission to impose a sales tax within their own borders in order to fund those stadiums. Um, Hennepin County needed such a law to help fund its portion of the Twin Stadium, and Anoka County, which is where the Wilf family originally wanted to put the new Viking Stadium before U.S. Bank got built, um, Anoka County would have also needed a similar law to be approved by the legislature because they weren't allowed to impose that kind of tax. Um, you might recall from an earlier unit that Alabama's constitution is longest in terms of pages of word count in the country. A lot of that is because there's all this language about very specific provisions that only apply to a particular county or an individual town or an individual city. There's been a long-running debate in Alabama over getting rid of that old constitution and streamlining it. And one of the major barriers to that is resistance from legislators because they like that ability, they like that power to pass local laws. You may also remember from that same unit that Georgia was the last state in 1983 to completely rewrite the, the entire constitution from scratch using the constitutional convention method. One of the biggest changes they made in 1983 was to prohibit the legislature from passing local laws that only affected a single county, school district, or city. That change came after a long, decades-long debate over whether the legislature should be able to limit what cities could do in the first place, especially in those fast-growing suburbs around the Atlanta area. So while this was an issue historically in Georgia, it's no longer the case, but it's still possible in many states, particularly for these very unique sorts of things like sports stadiums or um, regional rail, rail lines, things along those lines. Historically, most of the United States, there are three primary forms of governance models used in cities. Now, actually, there are four. The National League of Cities articles talk a little about this. But unless you live in New England, you've probably never heard of the town meeting, nor will you ever have to worry about the town meeting. That's a very unique form used only in the northeastern states. 
where local decisions are mostly made at some sort of annual or biannual or maybe monthly meeting of all the residents of the town. For our purposes, we're only going to talk about the three that actually tend to exist in most parts of the country. So the first and probably the most common is the mayor council. Um, the title is a little misleading. It implies that all these have a mayor who sits in some position of greater authority over the rest of the city council. That may or may not necessarily be the case. Um, some of these cities have mayors who elect the citywide, and they might have some sort of special authority over council meetings. Um, some cities have citywide elected mayors who only have the title, and they have no other power than any other council member. Um, still others have a council member who holds the title of mayor because he or she was elected to that post by their fellow council members. What they all have in common is that is this idea that the elected officials have responsibility collectively for city employees. The council's responsible for hiring and firing the police chief, the, sparks, the park superintendent, the fire chief, or et cetera. Now, there are some strong mayor systems where the council might have to defer to the mayor's authority to those decisions, but the decision still rests with an elected official. Several of the outside readings and the text contain, contain discussions about weak mayor and strong mayor. And you're going to notice in my notes, I put that in scare quotes. This is not a formal distinction, at least not legally. But it's very common for people who study public administration. Public administration is the, it's a specialty field within political science that mostly focuses on, on local government. Um, the public administration scholars tend to classify cities as strong mayor or weak mayor. It's usually based upon things like under the charter or under the governance model form, does the mayor have power to do things like veto laws, propose a budget, uh, hire and fire people without a full vote from the city council, and so on. Um, the second most popular, and one that's probably growing the most in popularity, is council manager. The principle behind this system is that you need to insulate city administration from politics. Get a professional administrator, usually someone with a degree, urban planning, public administration, something like that, and put them in charge of the day-to-day -day operations of the city. Um, in a pure council manager form, the city manager is the only employee who's actually hired or fired by the council. And then that manager, in turn, is responsible for hiring, firing, and supervising everybody else. So, you know, I mean, by everybody else, I don't mean the council. I mean, you know, again, the the fire chief, the police chief, the um, director of the solid waste plant, that sort of thing. Um, the way this is different is because the council doesn't share direct authority over the department heads. They only sh they're only responsible for the hiring and supervision of the city manager. In Moorhead, for example, up until a couple years ago, the city manager was a guy named Mike Redlinger. The city council decided, oh, we're going to let him go, not because they were unhappy with the job he was doing, but the, there were some employees, particularly the deputy city manager, that the council wanted fired. And when Redlinger said, I'm not going to fire them, the council said, okay, fine, we're going to fire you instead because you're the only person we have direct authority over. Um, you will probably notice when reading through the descriptions of this type in the book and the outside sources that the concept of a mayor is kind of missing from many of these systems. Um, some of them, have, they might have an official called council chair, those primary jobs seem to be running the council meetings. Now, some council manager systems do have an official called a mayor. Moorhead has a mayor. But if you actually watch how the Moorhead City Council functions, and if you read the charters of how these council manager systems function, um, there's very little actually that official has special power to do. Mostly, they run the city council meetings, and they don't really have any unique powers. 
because most of that day-to-day -day management, again, goes to this hired gun, the city manager. The last one to talk about is the commission. Um, I, I keep wondering every year, should I continue to talk about commission? And I still do because West Fargo and Fargo insist on, on keeping them. Um, and so because we have two major cities in this area that still use it, I still talk about it. Um, you'll see in my notes, and I think the book mentions this as well, uh, in fact, many books don't even talk about the commission system. There's probably less than 200 of them, and I've seen some estimates that say it's probably closer to 150 in the entire country. Um, they're, they're kind of a dwindling thing. Here's what's different. Each council member, each commissioner, at least theoretically, in a peer system, is they are the head supervisor of one of the city departments. So, for example, maybe one commissioner is in charge of the police and fire departments. Another is in charge of water, sewer, garbage. A third is in charge of streets and transportation. A fourth is in charge of budgeting. Again, these are all theoretical examples. The breakdown of which departments fall under which commissioner is going to vary a bit from city to city. But rather than collectively sharing oversight amongst the entire council, like Mayor Council does, each individual commissioner has absolute singular authority over one or two city functions. Um, so, as I said, West Fargo and Fargo are both considered commission systems. Each of the five members, the four commissioners and the mayor, uh, have responsibility for a particular portfolio of departments and functions. Although we have a slight, in our systems here locally in Fargo, West Fargo, both actually require votes of the entire commission to make certain types of decisions. Um, in the purer form, they literally are like little kings, little, little kings and princes and queens over their own individual area. Uh, the book mentions a common critique of this form. There's no common argument, agreement on overall city policy. Too often the decisions made by a particular apartment are very dependent upon the personality or political preferences of the individual commissioner who leads that department. And then when somebody else, a new commissioner, comes in and takes over that particular department, they might change the, the, uh, change the entire um, uh, Outlook who may change the entire approach to how that particular department does things. One last thing to mention are Indian reservations. Um, I often hear students say things like, hey, do you know that American Indians don't pay taxes? Or, hey, why can't the sheriff give speeding tickets to Native Americans? Now, statement, statements like that make a common assumption, which, by the way, is a false assumption, that all Native tribes are treated equally in relation to state and federal law. Indian reservations are creations of federal law. Remember, they were formed by treaties signed between tribes and the federal government, mostly back in the 19th century. They weren't created by the states. They, they, the states have very, actually very little authority when it comes to um, Indian reservations because they're technically considered sovereign nations. So they're not really local governments. Um, there are some reservations, like Red Lake, for example, up in northern Minnesota. They're almost like little countries to themselves. Um, but then others, like White Earth, um, is still subject to state taxation while having their own police authority. And then there's others, a couple, of, there's some reservations out west in Montana and Washington in particular, um, which are a little, little more land grants, and there's no real governing authority given to local council. Here's why. Each tribe made its own treaty with the federal government. Some of these treaties date from very early, 1830s or earlier. Some weren't negotiated until almost 1890. Each individual treaty, depending on who signed it, when, what was the military situation between the U.S. Army and that tribe at the time, 
Um, lots of different factors go into this. Um, so each treaty has individual provisions. Some gave the tribe lots of individual powers. Others forced the tribe to work in conjunction with the state government in some areas, or maybe in all areas. So we can't really make universal statements about reservations like all Indians don't pay taxes or sheriffs can't write speeding tickets on reservations. In some places that might be true, but in many it's not true. Um, because they have this unique status as creations of federal treaties, we can't really talk about them as a form of local government. Remember, local governments that we've, all the local governments we've been talking about up to this point are created by the states. Indian reservations are created by the federal government. So we can't really talk about native reservations as local governments. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Johnson from M State Moorhead. This is State and Local Politics. Have a great day.